Our text for this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. These are the words of the living God. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together here today to hear your word. We pray that you would come powerfully and wonderfully in our midst and help us to hear it. Help us to hear the truths that are contained in this scripture, as Christ is made much of in his resurrection. We pray that you would be exalted. We pray that you'd be well pleased. Be with us now and help us to be attentive to your word and not to be distracted. Guide us throughout by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Paul has just spent the last um, five verses in 1 Corinthians unpacking the uh, foolishness and absurdity of the idea that there is no resurrection from the dead and believing that there is no resurrection from the dead specifically. So we have to get the context in view here to understand what's going on. There were some in the Corinthian church who actually denied the resurrection of the dead. As one of my uh, former pastors said, the Corinthians were a jacked up, cracked up, smacked up bunch. Uh, there were a lot of issues in their church that were not being dealt with. And, and Paul writes this letter in response to some questions that they had asked him. And prior to that, Paul had sent them a letter warning them not to associate with anybody who is immoral. Well, apparently immorality and heresy and hypocrisy was still thriving in their congregation because in verse 12 he says that there are some among you who actually deny the resurrection. Then Paul lists uh, six or seven, something like that, maybe five reasons why it is foolish to uh, deny the resurrection of the dead. The chief one among them being the fact uh, that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection and we are still dead in our sins. As we heard in our liturgy this morning, uh, God justifies us in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if Christ is not risen, uh, then there's no resurrection and we are not justified and we are still dead in our sins. Paul says this is the message that we preach. This is the thing, the very thing that our faith is founded on. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, if Christ is not risen, then we are of all men to be most pitied. Because we are believing in a lie. We're hoping in something that will never happen. As Paul says, if there's no resurrection, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and then there's nothing. So then nothing matters. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then everything matters, and everything that he said matters. And so you see, if Christ is raised from the dead... um, What he said was true, and he says 
that there's going to be a resurrection and that there's going to be a final reckoning with all men in the end. So the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. Literally, it has changed everything, and if we lose it, we have nothing. If you deny the resurrection, you deny the Christian faith. If you deny the resurrection, you can have no hope. So Paul digs his heels in deep here, and he thoroughly unpacks the doctrine of the resurrection for us, because it really, really matters. Uh, In verse 20, if you look there again with me, we read, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 20, Paul begins to turn the tables a little bit and come at the argument from another way. Whereas before, he was um, highlighting all the negative implications of denying the resurrection. If this is not true, if this is not true, if this is not true. Here, he begins to positively affirm the resurrection. He says, oh, but it is true. And he shows the positive implications of affirming the resurrection from the dead. He says, but in fact, that is, in all reality, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's going to begin to show us now the way things actually are. And we're going to, we're going to focus on three important aspects of that reality in our sermon today. Number one... Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he is the first instance of the resurrection that we see in the world. Number two, Christ is the representative head of a new human race, and therefore everything that happens to him happens to us as Christians. And number three, there's an order in which the resurrection takes place. So we're going to focus on that first point. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he's the first instance of the resurrection that we see in the world. Here in verse 20, we'll read the whole thing again. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And you all understand this concept of first fruits, right? What are the first fruits? When you look out there into the... uh, cornfields and the bean fields, as you get closer to harvest, you begin to see these little green heads pop up. And first it's just a few, and then they begin to pop up like crazy. Those first fruits or first portions of the crop are a sign of a greater harvest that is to come. And every year when the farmer sees those first fruits out there in the field, he begins to get happy because he knows that his hard work is going to pay off and that a crop is soon coming, and that means money is going to be going into the bank. Now, this word first fruits also had liturgical connotations for Paul and his hearers. Every year, they were required to offer up the first fruits of their land as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. This was to be a uh, thanksgiving offering, and in so doing it, they were acknowledging that God had given them these first fruits or this first bit of the crop as a sign of the harvest to come. So therefore, they gave that first little bit to him in anticipation of what he was going to give to them. So as such, the first fruits functions as sort of a pledge or a promise of what is to come. And what Paul is telling us here is that God has begun the resurrection in Jesus Christ. He's the first one. He is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Other men Prior to this, had been 
raised from the dead, but then they died later on. But Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. God is doing a new work in the world through Jesus Christ. This is the first time that this has happened in human history. So when we look at the resurrection, we're supposed to see a first instance or a sampling of something that'll take place on a much larger scale sometime out there in the future. So Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now Paul switches his metaphor a little bit in verses 21 and 22, and we begin to see that second point that I mentioned, which is Christ is the representative head of a new human race, and therefore everything that happens to him happens to us. Verse 21, we read, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here Paul changes his metaphor, but his argument follows the same logic. I don't know if you picked up on that. He presents Christ and Adam here as representative heads of the human race. And this is a foreign concept to those of us who have been living long in America with this rugged individualistic mentality. You know, it's my life, my rules. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can represent me, blah, 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 blah. But in the ancient Near Near East, this concept makes perfect sense. Uh, Even today, people in that region of the world are much more community-oriented. For instance, if you were to go over into some of these remote tribal territories and preach the gospel to them, if their leaders or their chiefs are to get converted and baptized, the rest of the city will follow suit. This is just how tribal mentality works. Well, it's the same mentality that Paul's readers had, and it's the one that the ancient Hebrews held to, and therefore we've got to get this concept before us if we want to understand what's going on here. It's the concept of the one and the many. The one represents the many. In the ancient Near East, they had representative heads in their tribes. There were, there were people who represented the tribes when they spoke, and when they went places, they represented those people. And they would be leaders and chiefs of, um, hundreds, of thousands, of hundreds and fifties, and so on. And you even would have representative heads right on down into the home where the man would go and represent the family in Jerusalem as he offered up sacrifice every year for him. And Paul reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden, he says that we had a representative there as well. Adam was our representative in the Garden, and everything that he did affects us. Jonathan Edwards describes Adam as the root of the tree, and we are like the branches, right? And everything that you do to the root affects the branches as a whole. This is the concept of the one and the many. Adam and Christ are federal or covenantal heads. They are representatives of the human race. The one represents the many, and what happens to the one happens to all. And Paul highlights that here in two ways, death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Through Adam, sin and death entered into the human race, and it spread throughout, affecting the whole. Everybody who has been born since Adam now dies because they are guilty of his sin. When he sinned, it was as if we sinned, and therefore we now die. But here's the good news. We have another representative head who acted on our behalf. Christ is the representative of a new human race. 
that God is creating in the world and everything that happens to Christ happens to them. And guess what? Christ was resurrected. You see, Christ comes as the new man, as the new Adam, and he acts on our behalf. He, he does everything that Adam should have done, everything that we should have done. He obeys the law perfectly, and yet at the end of his life, he's put to death as an innocent man. But it's obviously not for his sins if he's innocent, right? It's for the sins of others. It's for our sins that he dies. Again, he's our representative. He, he dies the death that we should have died. On the cross, Christ bears the full brunt of our sin debt. Um, and the full weight of divine fury is poured out upon him, and he dies under the wrath of God on the cross in our place. And with his sacrifice... Again, he's doing it on behalf of others to sacrifice. God is well pleased. And so God raises him from the dead. That is what God is saying in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With him, I'm well pleased. With what he did, with what he said, it's enough. So God raises him from the dead to justify him. And guess what? Christ does not only represent us in death, but in resurrection as well. When he died, it was as if we died, and when he was resurrected, we were resurrected with him. Everything that happened to him will happen to us, and that is Paul's point. One man brought death into the world. Another man brought resurrection. Through one man, all men die. And through another man, all men will be made alive. There are two representatives of the human race, Adam and Christ. We are all born as sons of Adam, by virtue of our birth into the human race, and therefore we die. But we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ and made members of a new humanity and made sons of God, and as a result, we now live. So do you see the connections Paul is making here? He's the first fruits, and therefore we have a promise of what is to come in him. He is the guarantee that the human race, to the human race, that the resurrection will take place. And moreover, as we have just said, he is a representative. He represents the human race, and therefore everything that happened to him will happen to us. These ideas of first fruits and representative headship are not disconnected, but they're united. Again, the one represents the many, and what happens to the one happens to all, but not yet. Not yet. He says, in Christ shall all be made alive. Which puts this event out there sometime still in the future. Christ is only the first fruits. The final harvest is still to come. So the next logical question, of course, is when will the resurrection take place? When will we be resurrected with Christ? And in a sense, all believers can say that they have been resurrected with Jesus Christ. We've experienced kind of a foretaste, a sampling of the resurrection, as it were, in our salvation. When God comes into a man by the Holy Spirit and regenerates him and brings him to life in Jesus Christ, that person is resurrected. And that work of the Spirit is said by Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians to be a pledge or a guarantee, sort of a first installment, as it were, of the resurrection. 
But here Paul says a total resurrection is still out there in the future. There's coming a time when men will be resurrected altogether, body and soul together, to live forevermore, just as Christ was resurrected bodily from the dead to live forevermore. So this brings us to our third and final point. There's an order to which the resurrection takes place. Verse 23, we read, But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. First of all, Paul says that it will be each one in his own order, that is, in his own class or group. And this language would hold um, very specific uh, ramifications or implications for the Corinthians because they were a divided people. There were many divisions among the Corinthians. And Paul says here, there are not many classes. There's not many groups. There's the resurrection of Christ and those who are His at His coming. So again, there's no division between the first fruits and the harvest. They're all part of the same crop. There's just a distinction in order, in the order in which it takes place. Christ is raised first. He's the head of the new humanity and then those who are His at His coming. Again, we have the language of unity and oneness, but there is a time distinction in which the thing takes place. Distinction in time and the order of the resurrection. Now, those who are His at His coming. Who are those that are His? They are those who have been united together with Him by faith. They are the new humanity, the new harvest. They're part of the new work that God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the beginning of the resurrection, and all those who are in Him will be resurrected with Him. God is at work to resurrect and renew all things through Jesus Christ, and those who are swept up in what He is doing in Christ will become a part of the resurrection, part of that new humanity that God is creating in Christ Jesus throughout the world. God is creating this new humanity in the world through His church, and all those who are part of the church are a part of the body of Christ, and as such, they will be resurrected. It says here, that this all takes place at His coming. That is, at His parousia. Uh, This is a term in the Scriptures that has uh, reference to God coming in different junctures in history, in power. Um, And here it deals specifically with the coming of Christ at the end of time to set all things right. This is to say it deals specifically with the second coming of Jesus Christ. From the rest of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, we can gather that Christ is now at work in the world to subdue all things to Himself. That's what He's presently doing. He's been resurrected, exalted. He's sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and He is ruling as King and bringing all things into submission to Himself. text says He's presently at work to destroy all rule, authority, and power that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. And He will continue to fight and make war in the world through the gospel, until all of his enemies have been subdued to him. The text says the end does not come, get this, the end does not come until all of his enemies are put under his feet. 
And at the end of his reign, Christ will return to resurrect all men, believers and non-believers alike, and they will stand before him and be judged. And those who are his at his coming will be raised again to die forevermore, uh, to, to live forevermore. So the resurrection takes place at the second coming of Christ. Now in closing, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is he yours? And are you his? Is he yours and are you his? It's the resurrection of Christ and all those who are his at his coming. Is he now your representative? Was he your representative when they nailed him to the cross that day? Have you been united to him by faith in what he has done? And if so, you will be resurrected just as he was and experienced life forevermore. You will be counted among those who are his at his coming. But I I think another key piece to all of this is unity. We are one with Christ, and when I say we, that means all of us. There is no preference in the body of Christ. There is no division in the body of Christ. There is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those who are His at His coming. That's it. There's not separate and distinct resurrections. It's the one resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in which we all partake. Everything we have, we have in Him. You you can't separate or divide out the work that God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. It's, It's one unified work that He's doing all together. And therefore, we must be all the more careful to maintain this unity. We are one in all things. We have one Lord, one faith, one hope. We all partake of one baptism. We are all made members of one church, one body of Christ. We are all one with Christ in His death and in His burial. And in the resurrection, we will be one. So let us be united together. Let us be united in mind and in service and in purpose because we have all been made partakers of the one Christ and the one resurrection of which there is no division or separation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, of which we have been made partakers by faith. Those of us who are His can claim that we have been made part of this resurrection that has began in the world that You are working throughout. We have already experienced some of the first fruits of that. We have the blessings of the Holy Spirit. We've been made members of this church. We've been made members of You through Him through His body. Let us be reminded of that. Let us be reminded that we are one with Him. We are one in the body of Christ. And we are one with Him in His resurrection. And we will be one with Him together throughout all eternity. And let that reflect in the way that we live our lives, O Lord. Help us to live resurrected lives this day. New lives. And let the world be swept up in what You are doing here through us in Princeville. For it's in Christ's name we pray.